for children, children ages three and four and kindergarten to second grade are welcome to attend Children's Church at this time, and there are leaders waiting for you out in the lobby in the back. Parents, you're welcome to help your children get into the right lines, and if you still need to check in your children, you should see Anne or Bethany at the check-in desk near the children's wing doors, which is right below us. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you. Greetings from Redeemer Fellowship Church in Watertown. Uh, It is a privilege to be here with you. We are so grateful for South Shore Baptist Church, your pastors, your elders, and for this congregation. Um, As many of you know, Dave Como, who is formerly a pastor here, is is our church planning resident, and we're um, working together even with South Shore to uh, see a church planted uh, here in the next couple of years with Dave as the senior pastor. So we're so grateful for this partnership and this church's heart for the, for the gospel, not only here, but at, in throughout uh, Massachusetts and New England. So we're so thankful for you. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach with the emphasis on missions uh, from Colossians chapter 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 15 through 23. And if we could read that first, and then I'll pray, and then we'll look at the text together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Let's hear the Word of God together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this word, your word, and make it such that we hear it and we heed it, that we might become more impressed with our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and that by being impressed, we would engage in the ministry of telling other people about this great Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, it has 
probably been rightfully criticized over the last several years. Social media has also been an opportunity for us to gain some understanding about humanity. One thing that we've learned about social media or about people through social media is that people don't need much encouragement to talk about things that they're passionate about or meaningful to them. People just seem very comfortable sharing things that they're passionate about, things that are meaningful to them. And as we think about that intersection with Christianity, specifically with the mission of the gospel, we should know that talking to people about Jesus, engaging in evangelism, thinking about missions should be something that we as people are keen to talk about. Because after all, Jesus is the one who Christians should be most passionate about. The message of the gospel should be most meaningful to us. And so as we think this morning about being more faithful in that regard, I think we could look at the Apostle Paul as an example of one who faithfully proclaimed the gospel. And what he wants to do is he wants to encourage the Colossian church to be faithful as well, to continue with Jesus, to persevere in Him, and to make much of Him. So what's his strategy? His strategy is to to showcase the glory of Jesus Christ, that His people would be impressed by Him, that is, by Jesus, not Paul, and continue in the faith and make much of Him by telling other people about Him. And that's what we want to see this morning by way of application. We want to see that the supremacy of Christ demands our worship. And it's my understanding that if we worship Christ because of His supremacy, then we'll want to tell other people about Christ. We'll want to talk about what's meaningful to us, what we're passionate about. First, let me just set the table in Colossians what's going on in the passage. Paul is in prison and he's not met these people. Epaphras is someone that he knows who would have planted this church. And what's going on, there's, there's some false teaching in the water. It's kind of a, an incipient or early form of Gnosticism. And you don't really need to know what that means this morning, but what you need to know is the result is there is a demotion of Jesus. He's being relativized as just another figure, kind of a kind of this big bookshelf of deities or, or uh, mediators to get you to God. And Jesus is being diminished, and other isms are being elevated. And Paul wants to show that actually Jesus Christ has no rivals. He's utterly peerless. He's absolutely preeminent. And everywhere you turn from Christ, you turn to something lesser. So you must understand that Jesus Christ is supreme. And so what we'll look at this morning are three lenses to see His supremacy. First, in creation, second, recreation, and third, in proclamation. So let's look first at creation in verses 15 through 17. This likely was a a hymn in verses 15 through 20 that would have been popular in the early church. And here we have, that's why it just hits with such depth in each and every level. But first we see this statement that He is the image of the invisible God. This is His unique role for humanity. Jesus is the image of God. We understand images. Images are, are representations of the actual form. 
So if we were to go to the, the public gardens and you would go to the front and you would see this very large statue greeting you as you make your way in of George Washington to reflect him. It obviously isn't George Washington, it's an image of him. We have statues all over the place that reflect the one who they're designed after. So the image then is to reflect the one whom they project. We are the image of God as humanity, but we don't perfectly reflect that image of God. Jesus perfectly reflects the image of God. But there's a difference between Jesus' reflecting of the image of God and you and I reflecting the image of God. That is that Jesus perfectly reflects that image. It's also the difference in in, in, in the essence or the substance of who Jesus is. Because Jesus Himself is the very God. It's the difference between turning on a light in a room as we have derived electricity from the power of the sun versus the actual sun itself. Jesus is the power source. He is of the very nature God. And He perfectly reflects God's image. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that He's the exact representation of His nature, the exact imprint of His character. Jesus has this unique place as the image of God. You might remember at the end of John's Gospel where Philip asked Jesus to see the Father. And, and what, is, what does Jesus say to him? Philip, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus perfectly reflects the image of God so that we needn't go anywhere else to see what God is like. As Hebrews chapter 1 says, in earlier times, former, manner, former, former times, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in the last days, He has spoken to us, what? Through His Son. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. He's the incarnate Word. He testifies to the written Word. But we also see His unique relationship to creation with the next clause. It says He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this word firstborn, it, it doesn't refer to the fact that Jesus has been created, as a plain reading of the next few verses will make clear. You might have somebody knock on your door one afternoon and come to you and say, oh, you're a Christian. Well, don't you know that Jesus isn't God? The Bible says He was firstborn, therefore He was created. He's just another part of creation. Just as an aside, for free, whenever you're talking to somebody that is pointing out something, a false teacher or something that's confusing in the Bible, the rule is usually just read the two verses before and keep reading. Usually these things clear themselves right up. If we were to keep reading, we'd see that actually Jesus is the Creator. So what does firstborn mean then? Firstborn has to do with status or rank. Actually, the words used of David in Psalm 89, the firstborn, it's used of Israel, of the nations. It wasn't the first nation created, but it had a special distinct place. Even as David wasn't the first king but it had a special distinct place. So when we think of firstborn, what we're thinking of here is is this position of rank. But Jesus as the firstborn actually does communicate pre-existence as we see as the rest of the chapter goes on to see that He is actually prior to creation. And then Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that He is the heir of creation. So this concept of of firstborn refers to Jesus definitely by virtue of of time, but also rank and the fact that He's the heir of everything. So Jesus' relationship to creation as the firstborn is that He's supreme over it. And He is the heir of it. 
And He is the one, ultimately, who is over it. So you can't turn away from Jesus to anything else in creation because He is over creation. See, just think about this. If, if you're turning away from Jesus or you're proclaiming something other than Jesus as the ultimate good, then you've turned away from what is ultimately good. That's Paul's argument. He's, he's the greatest. He is supreme. He is preeminent. Don't turn away from Him. But not only is He the firstborn, you see in verse 16, He is the Creator. And the best way to understand this is to, to see and kind of follow the prepositions by, through, and for. Just walk through verse 16 with me and you'll see this. It says, by Him, that is by Jesus, all things were created. What is that all things? Well, he expands it. He says, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Likely, these are speaking of the spiritual authorities, the spiritual rulers and dominions. He's over everything, the angelic world, the demonic world, Satan, over everything, and the earthly world, everything that has been created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. Everything that is, is because Christ created it. Nothing came into existence apart from Jesus. He is the one by whom God created the world. That's what Paul's arguing. Again, you see the supremacy of Christ. This is peerless category of being the creator. It was created by Him. It was created through Him. Everything that exists came into being through Him, but not only through Him, also for Him. That means that everything that has been created has been created for the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything is for Him. If we were to imagine this kind of played out, you, you think of the ubiquitous branding of companies like uh, Nike or Apple, and you, just, you see the logos everywhere. Think of the fact that Jesus made every single thing. All of creation is embedded with the divine logo. It's all stamped with soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The glory of Christ is stamped on every bit of creation, every drop of dew on the blade of grass, every activity of gravity, the intricate design of flowers, the function and motivation of insects, all molecules, the breath that is currently in your lungs, your very life stamped with the glory of God. Everything for Christ. It's all for Him. This whole world for Him. Everything was created for Christ. If you want to do some additional reading on that, uh, 18th century pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, or actually... Jonathan, John Piper took the sermon, but it's uh, Edwards writing on the end for which God created the world. And you can read that in a, in a hardback updated edition by John Piper. But what that's really saying, it's making the argument that everything was created for the glory and joy of God. Everything that is. And you see here in this passage, hopefully expanding our understanding of seeing the glory of Christ in everything in creation. So you wake up in the morning. And you see the heavens in mid-sentence declaring how great Thou art. We can't understand what the birds are singing, but I'm pretty sure they're singing how great Thou art. You, 
drive down the road and you look at the beautiful foliage and you say, well, this is beautiful. Why is it here? Declares the glory of God. Everything is the glory of God. Everything is amplifying His greatness. He's altogether glorious. But when we think about this world that He created, it's vast, isn't it? It's massive. If you think about just even the size of the universe, latest estimates by astronomers tell us that the universe is 30 or 40 billion light years in diameter. Think about that. It would take 40 billion years to cross from one side of the universe to the other. And the universe contains 100 billion galaxies. And the largest galaxies contain 400 billion stars. There's 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. If every star in the Milky Way was a grain of salt, it would fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And you think about the sun. It's so big, if you hollowed it out, it would hold 1,300,000 of our Earths. And the largest star that is known is so big, if you hollowed it out, it would hold 27 billion suns. Some of you may have heard of the, the paper stack model. So you consider the thickness of a piece of paper, like a standard piece of paper, the thickness of it, right? Now imagine that that thickness equals 93 million miles, which is the distance from the earth to the sun. So you take this thickness, this is 93 million miles, and how many sheets of paper would it take, or how high would the stack have to be if you were going to represent reaching the nearest star, Alpha Centauri? That stack would be 70 feet high. You're talking about this universe is massive absolutely massive. And then if you wanted to get out of our own backyard and leave the Milky Way, how many sheets of paper would it take to, to, to represent the, the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy? It's 310 miles of paper. This is a humongous world that has been made. And then if you said you wanted to get to the edge of the known universe... And we don't know even what's beyond that, but as far as we could see with the most powerful telescope, how many sheets of paper would it take to get that distance? It would be 31 million miles high of stacks of paper. And then we think of creation, that all things exist through Him, by Him, and for Him. We think of a passage like Job 38, 7, that when the morning stars sang together and all the suns shouted for joy at creation. See, when you realize that Jesus Christ hung the stars, He brought all that exists into existence, vast beyond what we can even comprehend, measure, or see. And we think about this, we say, He is infinitely great. He is preeminent. It makes us feel very small to consider the the ridge of the universe and to consider that Jesus made it. He's the unrivaled Lord of the universe, and yet He knows our name. He draws near to us as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. He cares about us. A staggering. But not only did He create everything, 
Also we see in verse 17, He's before all things and all things in Him hold together. He keeps it together. He's not a a deist. We don't have a deist God that just kind of wound things up and He's separate from it. He's intricately by His sovereignty sustaining all things. He keeps things together. I'll never forget the illustration of R.C. Sproul. I was watching him preach one day at at a conference and he stood up, and I can't remember what he, what he did, but he, he, I mean, what he actually had in his hand. But he, had, he held it up, and he said, okay, as I hold this right now, and I drop it, what caused that to fall to the ground? And a room full of pastors said, gravity. And he pointed at him, And he said, wrong. You're pagans. The Lord Jesus Christ caused that to fall to the ground, right? He's saying, Colossians 1.17, All things hold together by Him. He sustains everything. Maybe gravity might be the explanation that we provide, but Jesus Christ is the one who puts all of these things together. Christ is behind it all. He's the sustainer of everything. There are no maverick molecules. Christ upholds all things. And it is good for us to walk around the outer ring of the galaxy and look and see the stars staying in there rightful spot, properly labeled and being obedient to the Master according to His command, shows us that Christ is worthy of worship. It almost makes you want to brag on Him, doesn't it? It makes you want to boast in Him. It makes you want to pray to Him. It makes you want to sing to Him. It makes you want to keep going in the faith because He is preeminent. He's supreme. The second lens is to think about recreation. That's just creation. Now we think about recreation. We see this in verses 18 through 22. It says that He's the the head of the body, the church. To be the head, it means he's, He's the Lord of the church. He's the life giver of the church. He's the authority of the church. The church, His body, exists because He lives. He's the authority of the church. He's the senior pastor of the church. He's the authority of it. Jesus is in charge and He rules the church by His Word. And then we see in verse 18, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in Him, that in everything, He might be preeminent. Again, we see this firstborn idea. Obviously, Jesus, other people would have died before Jesus, but we're talking about Jesus' resurrection is a unique resurrection. So he's the, the firstborn of the dead, meaning he's the, the one who leads everyone else into this great resurrection. So by virtue of his rank and his status and his timing, as Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be resurrected like him. We can look at his resurrection and that's how we will be raised from the dead. This Jesus also died, but he was raised from the dead. It's a foretaste of what we ourselves will enjoy if we're in Christ. Then it says in verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is that that He is the fullness of God. As chapter 2 verse 9 says, all the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. He is God incarnate, infinite, yet as a man. But what does He do? It says through Him to reconcile. That is through Jesus God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He's talking here about a, an estranged universe. We might not realize this because we, this is all we've known. We've lived here and existed in this world, but it, it doesn't function the way it was designed to. We know that God made the world and everything was good. And there was no cancer or corona or tidal waves or earthquakes or any other disasters or manifestations of the curse of sin. But then when Adam and Eve sinned, the world was cursed and it was plunged into that state of rebellion that reflects Adam and Eve's sin and indeed all of our sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all creation is groaning under the effects of sin. That is the explanation for the world and the way it exists. But it's groaning, as it were, hoping and waiting for its restoration. It's as if things are out of balance, at least. When Jesus Christ came and He died upon the cross, He put all creation under its rightful head, that is Him. The cross is the way in which God brings a, a decreated world back under Him in the, in the way of bringing renewal and ultimately. It's what theologians call already, not yet. Through the cross, He purchased it, but it hasn't been finally and ultimately realized. So we are in this period of time awaiting the full manifestation of His recreating work as He puts all things back together, back to the divinely created order. Now you look at this in verse 20 and you see He reconciled to Himself all things. You might look and say, well, does that mean that all things corresponds with all people? Therefore, all people are reconciled to God. He's going to talk about people in just a minute, but what He's speaking about here is creation itself. So He's not saying here that all people are going to heaven, but rather He's making the point that creation in its state of being, of being uh, outside, uh, not fully aligned under Christ, needed to be reconciled. And He made peace by the blood of His cross. That was the means by which He did it. He's recreating this world. Now He does pivot in verse 21 to begin talking about salvation of individual sinners. And you see that. He says, "...in you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by death." So now he begins speaking of this work of reconciliation in the lives of people. I want you to notice the description he gives in verse 21. In you, he gives three statuses who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is the former status of all Christians. It is the condition of all people who are outside of Christ. These three realities... Alienated, it means, it means uh, separated or estranged, a stranger. It's not just a day or two of alienation, it's the whole life. Depravity is not referring to primarily what we do, but who we are, separated from God. It's, it's separated or alienated from God, that's what he's speaking of. Separated from his blessings, his goodness, but not only that, there's also hostile in mind. There's really not a nice way to say this. It literally means hating in the mind. It's used to describe personal enemies, national enemies, or in here, a divine enemy. It's, it's the result of being painfully alienated. Alienated from God creates this hostility in the mind against God, and then it manifests itself, as it says, doing evil deeds or works of evil. 
And this is who we are apart from Christ. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But again, to make us impressed with Christ, to make us passionate about Christ, to drive home the reality that what He has done and who He is is supremely meaningful. Look what he says. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. He has reconciled the alienated, hostile in mind, people doing evil deeds. This is what He's done. He made peace to people who were at spiritual war with Him. He made peace. He made peace with God by giving His body in death. The implications are obvious. We didn't want peace. We wanted war. He wanted peace and He made peace. He did this for us. He did it through His cross. Christian, let the Calvary anthem forever resound in your soul. He has reconciled you to God. He did it through His death. Verse 22. Why is death necessary? Because the wages of sin is death. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was instructed by God, the day you eat of it, you will die. The wages of sin, the price tag for sin is death. So Christ had to die for our sin. He bore the debt on the cross. Think about the reality of the cross. Think about this. We were due death. Sure, physical death. Spiritual death, of course, we experienced it. But eternal death in hell. And Christ on the cross drank the divine cup of wrath that was due us. He drank it dry, down to its dregs. He drank damnation dry. So he could say, it is finished. He removed wrath. He bore guilt. He satisfied justice. All the while loving us being merciful to us, being gracious to us, being kind to us. And we're not the good kids. We're the alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds people. He did that for us. And who is He? He's none other than the image of God. The firstborn of creation. The Creator. The one who through whom, by whom, and for whom all creation exists. He is the one who sustains all things by His powerful Word. He is the one who is fully God. He's the sovereign over the universe. He's Jesus Christ, God's Son, and He died for our sins. Infinitely high, yet He stooped infinitely low to serve us by dying for us. No wonder Jesus could say, no greater love has anyone than this, that they would give their life for their friends. Paul say, you know, even for a good man, someone rarely would die. But God demonstrates His love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The one who upholds all things by His powerful word bowed his head so that you could be reconciled. The one who is the perfect image of God, perfect representation of God, became sin for us. 
The one who is the reservoir of all divine blessings in the aroma of pleasure to God became cursed for us. The one who's eternally resided in the presence and pleasure of God was rejected and set outside the camp to bring us, alienated people, home to God. There's a lot of things that we can tend to overstate and and say, but this is one thing we cannot overstate. Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And I think in heaven... One of the chief things that we will have regretted about our lives on earth is that we valued the blood of Christ too lightly. We didn't think on Him enough. We didn't enjoy His benefits and His blessings enough. We weren't impressed enough with Him. Oh, that we might be more impressed with Christ. We might be more passionate about Him, more in love with Him, more grateful to Him. Because look what he ends up doing. You see the, tri- the kind of the triad of iniquity, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But because of the work of Christ, you have the triad of blessings. Holy, verse 22, blameless, above reproach. Holy, this is, this is that we're without sin or separate from sin. He will present us before God. The formerly unholy ones will be holy before God. We'll be blameless in God's sight. Like the sacrificial animals that were blameless without blemish and beyond reproach, even though Satan may accuse his people, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. And we'll stand before him. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who died, rather who was raised. No one can condemn us because we have Christ as Savior. And what's the implications? Well, look at this. In verse 23, we'll see the final lens. It's proclamation. Proclamation. What do you do about this? He says, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He, he, he gives us this fresh drink of the gospel. And then he says, if you continue. Obviously, the people who are truly Christians are going to continue. But also, we still need to continue. So it's not as if God lives our Christian life through us. We must continue to faithfully walk in Christ. As he says in chapter 2, verse 6, As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. That is by faith. Continue walking. Continue following Him. One of the ways that we proclaim His supremacy, His excellence, His preeminence, is by not turning away from Him to other gods not turning away from Him to other religions, not turning away from Him to earthly things that have been created, but rather continue on in Him saying, Christ is supreme. I'll take my lumps for following Him. I'll do what I need to do for following Him, but He is worth it. He's faithful. He's good. He's preeminent. He's supreme. And that's my motivation. I will continue on in Him. I will persevere in Him. Then the other side of it, is the message of the gospel, and you see that modeled. Paul just slides this in here, that this gospel that you heard, this glorious truth of Christ dying for our sins that you heard, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And Paul's a minister. He's saying, this message is, being, is reaching the end of the earth. And isn't it encouraging to see that in the first century, 
the truth of the gospel so gripped these people that they brought the gospel to their neighbors and to the nations. The reality that Jesus Christ reconciled them to God and that they would be presented before God holy and blameless, above reproach, that was meaningful to them. That they sacrificed and redirected their lives to serve and promote this message. Not only continue on in the gospel, but sacrifice and serve to get the gospel out, either by going or supporting those who go. It gripped them. That's why Paul could say, if you just drop down to verse 28, Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, that is presenting people in Christ, proclaiming Him, for this I toil, struggling, agonizing with all the energy that He powerfully works in me. See, this is, this is the reality here, is when we come to see the supremacy of Christ, we see that it demands our worship. And we understand that bound up in that worship is boasting in Him, living in such a way that we continue on in Him and we tell other people about Christ. I think it's convicting to think about what we boast in or who we boast in. It's convicting to think about what we share. There's nothing wrong with sharing things talking about things you love. I'm I'm a dad of six. I love talking about my kids. I love talking about my wife. I'm a Patriots fan. I love talking about the Patriots. But the reality is, sometimes we can forget that Jesus Christ eclipses everything. And we need to give Him proper attention and proper due and worship Him for what He deserves. Sometimes we're inclined to the wrong things. Sometimes we're inclined to the right things, but at the expense of even better things. So this week, it would do all of us well to ponder the excellencies of Christ. And in pondering these things, to reaffirm and recommit that I... By, by, by your grace, God, I will not turn away from Christ. Where else could I go, said Peter? I'm going to continue on. I'm going to persevere. And by pondering him, I'm going to tell other people about Jesus. I'm going to support the work that does that very thing also. Because in him, all things are to see, be seen. He is preeminent over them. The supremacy of Christ demands our worship. So let's do that. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you this morning for the Word of God and how Paul layered glorious truth after glorious truth of Christ. May we see more of Christ in the Scripture and may we exalt in Him and make much of Him. This we pray in His excellent In preeminent name, amen. Well, let's stand together.